How do you know when you really live in a place? Not the actual dwelling, but the world that surrounds it. It's geography, smells, history, politics, it's light. There's a moment, often sometime in that liminal stage of early adolescence, when your sense of self can no longer be developed or contained within a home that defines it for you, but has to be pursued on your own terms. Our bodies pass through the space of other people's stories all the time. We asked 10 writers to think of a place within the city of Berkeley where something meaningful or memorable happened to them, and then to write a story inspired by that place. Some are fact, some are fiction, and some live somewhere in between. I'm Joanna Felser, Artistic Director of Berkeley Rep. This week on Berkeley Rep's Place Settings, we bring you a story of a young woman venturing beyond home, beyond family, to new frontiers, promised by the North Berkeley BART Station. The Third Sphere by Kamala Parks, read by Denmo Ibrahim. Yasmin sets off from the house behind the house on a crisp Friday afternoon. She is still getting acclimated to the weather since moving to Berkeley two months ago. She arrived at King Middle School on her first day of eighth grade, dressed in shorts and a tank top, only to be swallowed whole by the pea soup fog that penetrated her bones until she returned home and straddled the floor heater. Today, it's a different story, with the October sun etching the built-up landscape slanting magically to showcase the bungalows in stark but warm relief. Walking east towards the hills, she mouths the name of each street she passes to commit them to memory. Curtis Street. The irony that Kurt is the name of the boy she has liked since the third grade is not lost on her. She left him in San Jose along with five years of her life. Not that he would notice or care about her absence. As much as Yasmin missed him and his obliviousness to her, she is grateful that he isn't bearing witness to her bespectacled face with its growing field of acne. She winces at the memory of her thoughtlessness when she informed her mother of her decision to move. Yasmin's father proposed the idea of coming to live with him late in the summer, and she shocked them both by agreeing immediately, reacting like she was adrift in the Pacific, and she spuriously grabbed at an object that could have been a life raft or a shark's fin. Her mother's reaction? Stunned for eight seconds, angry for two minutes, a spell of crying for five minutes, then acceptance for the remainder of Yasmin's time in San Jose. Her skeptical, loving, steel-tough mother, who was forced to let her youngest go just as she was on the cusp of womanhood, while her own was draining away. Chestnut Street? Yasmin looks both left and right, but fails to discern any of the namesake trees, not that she's an expert in that realm. She reflects on the three worlds she inhabits, her mother's, her father's, 
and the empty sphere of her burgeoning independence. Her mother's family is boisterous, numerous, and laser-focused on two pillars, work and family. When they visit the Leyun compound, Feiruz is singing. Na na wela margeron betu The comforting smell of lavash bread baking and the gracious and heartfelt greeting Ahlin was Ahlin. The compound seems modest enough from the outside, but contains a great room that can easily accommodate the dozens of family members who may or may not be related. The garden out back is a meticulously organized mini-farm intended to feed the hordes, ensuring infrequent trips to the grocery store. The old country is inevitably discussed, though most of the family had never set foot there. As much as Yasmin loves the Leyuns, their life priorities don't resonate with her. Her father's family is compact, accepting, and alcohol-centric. Yasmin's grandmother is vainly trying to generate interest in the family tree she put together that shows how the Claytons are related to Queen Elizabeth. Sitting in their dilapidated rental house, situated on five unruly Sonoma acres of blackberry bushes and rusty cars, Yasmin thinks that her grandmother is stretching it a bit. Despite their different backgrounds, Yasmin's parents had bonded on their black sheep statuses. Academics born into anti-intellectualism, art and culture lovers from families that prized pragmatism and thrift, the dark specters of childhood neglect and abuse that are embedded in their DNA. Walking past West Street, Yasmin ruminates on the fixed position of its name, ignoring that it is east of something. This abandoned path, weeds interspersed with railroad tracks, seems like a deliciously forbidden place to explore for a future outing. Although she would stop before reaching University Avenue, where the prostitutes roam and the JV liquor store serves as a hive for lost bees, she continues her forward momentum. Yasmin has no memories of her parents together, happily or not. She remembers individual interactions of her younger days, like her mother's lullaby while changing her diapers. Exercise, exercise, see me do my exercise. Or waking up in her father's lap after sleepwalking there, groggily taking in the evening news. The hayride on a family trip to Camp Mather in Yosemite, for which she only remembers her mother's and brother's presence. But then the gang murder at the corner gas station that she and her father and brother witnessed upon their return home from that very same trip. They were clearly on that trip altogether, but already not as a family. Nonetheless, 
The vacuum created by her father's physical departure still haunted her. They have a strong bond, Yasmin and her father. She still watches him shave, the smell of Noxima strangely intoxicating. A month before, as she was cursing her homework, he dragged her by the ankles from her desk and plopped her in front of the TV for a PBS broadcast of Mahler's Fifth Symphony. Ever the teacher, he talks with her about culture and art and music as if she were one of his community college students. She loves her mother, of course, but theirs is a more challenging relationship. After teaching at a business school during the day and typing transcripts for a court reporter at night, her mother's patience is thin. Yasmin and her brother tiptoe around their house as their mother decompresses from her 12-hour workday. With a book and a cup of tea, the silence intermittently broken by the tinkling spoon. The rise and fall of their fortunes manifested itself in their housing over the previous five years. An apartment with a pool, a ranch-style house across from an orchard, a mobile home park where Yasmin beat up the boys who tortured animals. Oh, Franklin Street, like FDR, which presidential number was he? She tries to name and number all of the presidents, starting with Washington, but gives up after Adams. Yasmin's brother is five years older. He alternates his treatment of her between complete disdain and inarticulate rage. He has a habit of locking her in closets and, in the weeks before her 10th birthday, repeatedly told her that she was going to die at her celebration. Her family says, Oh, (laughs) he's only zipping you! But... She knows it's more than teasing. It's punishment for the obvious favoritism their father bestows on Yasmin. She had no idea how much the living situation with her mother and brother was weighing her down until Yasmin's father presented the opportunity of escape. His jealous and violent girlfriend had moved to Monterey, so he would mostly visit her there on the weekends. Yasmin had a choice then to be regularly tormented by her brother or occasionally tormented by her father's girlfriend. It seemed like a clear step up. Still, the move to Berkeley had been rough. Proposition 13, a 1978 initiative to cap property taxes, and Reagan's trickle-down economics had already affected schools. Initially, Yasmin was gleeful when Proposition 13 was passed by California voters. Its opponents threatened that the lack of taxes would result in a shorter school year. Yeah, I want a longer summer. Sadly, it really meant that she was placed in the remedial track, with Coach Cox teaching the same math class she had taken the year before, because there was no room in the normal classes. Surrounded by bullies who stole her wallet and pinched her butt, she absented herself for three weeks straight. Each day, she left the house and waited around the corner until her father left for work. 
Then she would return home, climb into bed, and sedate herself by watching TV. This really can't go on, Yasmin muttered to herself. Do I really want to be a middle school dropout? She feels, rather than knows, the crisis in which she finds herself and senses that her most valued traits, self-sufficiency and maturity, along with her new-to-Berkeley status, have inadvertently created a barren sphere. This is why she had to travel across the bay to see Rachel, her only friend. She met Rachel in kindergarten, and somehow they managed to maintain their friendship despite Yasmin's multi-city household tour. Rachel's mother and her girlfriend make space for the girls to work out dance routines, create game arcades, and build haunted houses, then affirm their efforts by being supportive participants or audience members. Rachel's sprawling family is a community of artists, comrades, and friends who share resources. This enables weekend trips in their Volkswagen Vanagon to Mendocino, Guerneville, and Kybers. Theirs is an expansive world full of possibility, even without material wealth. The refuge of her friend's home had only recently been threatened by Rachel's father, who was trying to find out where they lived so he could sue for custodial rights. The missing puzzle piece of their address is the only thing keeping Rachel with her mother, as the courts view child-rearing and lesbianism to be mutually exclusive. The journey is a first for Yasmin, getting to Rachel's place on her own. Up until now, she was delivered and picked up like a diaper service. Now, she feels faint glimmers of what? Empowerment? Hopefulness? Ambulatory purpose? Acceptance of the irony that her treasured self-sufficiency is leading her to the comfort of others. The walkway brings her to a cul-de-sac at Acton Street. Hmm, what an unusual and easy name. But Yasmin is perplexed by the crosswalk that leads to a vast expanse of sleeping cars. She espies the squat beacon almost directly ahead that connects her to the most momentous part of her trip. Seeing no obvious path, she picks her way through the parking lot to the plaza stairs, mounts them to approach the North Berkeley BART station's rotunda. After purchasing her ticket, she descends the stairs to the platform. Yasmin has time to marvel at the engineering feat of this transit station, juxtaposed with the ease at which her 13-year-old body could independently travel to the bosom of Rachel's family in San Francisco. Yasmin is seeding her third sphere, a barely discernible seismic shift that is anticipated by the air suck and cheery warning beeps accompanying her approaching train.
This story was written by Kamala Parks, co-founder of 924 Gilman, a volunteer-run community space for music, art, and activism in Berkeley. She plays drums in Plot 66, a noir punk band, and works as a planner at BART, the Bay Area's regional transit system. Our reader was Denmo Ibrahim, an Egyptian-American actor and writer hailed as a tower of strength in the Bay Area theater scene by the San Francisco Chronicle. If you haven't been lucky enough to catch her work on a stage in the Bay Area or around the world, I hope you have that chance sometime soon. Berkeley Rep thanks our Rep on Air sponsor, the Bernard Osher Foundation, and our place-setting sponsor, Berkeley Side. And we're so grateful to our Berkeley Rep season sponsors, Bruce Golden and Michelle Mercer, Francis Hellman and Warren Breslau, Jack and Betty Schaefer, the Strout Kulhangian family, Bart, and Pete's Coffee for their generous support. This series is produced by Berkeley Repertory Theater, sound designed by Lane Elms and Madeline Oldham. Our theme music is by Buen Aurelio Malazar. You can find him on Bandcamp. Join us next week for a story by Philip Kahn Gotanda.